So it is currently 9.43 on Friday the 21st of October. We finished recording cross-section yesterday at about five past one and about 25 minutes later, Liz Truss announced that she would be resigning as Prime Minister. So Danny and I thought we should probably record something extra. Now, this week we had decided to do an extended conversation focused on the week's politics and the discussion we had yesterday is still worth listening to. We talked about power moves that may or may not have happened, the role of the church in this chaos, how we can disagree well with one another, and what we need from our leaders, as well as answering some big questions such as why is it important Christians vote in the next general election and how does one go about trying to decide how to vote? But according to Liz Truss, we will have a different prime minister this time next week. Danny, what what now? Well, first of all, a little bit of British political theory. The party that is in government is responsible for uh, choosing someone who has the confidence of their MPs, who then the monarch appoints as prime minister. Now, usually that's the leader of the party and they're elected in a general election. But between those points, it falls to the party to decide who can represent them in Parliament. So while people might want there to be a general election, there's no expectation of that. So the Conservative Party has decided a very fast timetable. By next Friday, there will be a new leader of the Conservative Party who is will then become Prime Minister. Uh, MPs will decide on who they want uh, over the course of this weekend effectively. Monday lunchtime, there will be a vote and MPs have to uh, have had at least 100 backers. So it puts the threshold really high. So there will be a maximum of three candidates in that vote on Monday. And then if then the top two will go to the party members for an online vote to be concluded by Friday. There's some speculation that at that point, actually, the second place candidate might drop out and the top candidate might effectively be appointed. But it's really a two stage process. MPs will vote on Monday and then party members will vote throughout the week. Okay, and I have looked at the news this morning, but has anyone sort of officially confirmed that they're running at this point? Well, there's a lot of uncertainty. I think so. I think Rishi Sunak at this stage, as you say, it's now nine forty-five. He's the only person that has officially said that he is running. Uh, Rishi is ready. Uh, the country is ready for Rishi. But there's also been a grassroots campaign for Penny Mordaunt to throw her hat uh, back in the ring. She ran in the leadership election in the summer. And then it's the it's the draft Boris, the bring back Boris or Boris or bust campaign that's got a lot of energy in the last 24 hours. Boris Johnson has been on holiday in the Dominican Republic and is apparently flying back. He hasn't officially said he is going to run, but there is every expectation that he will put his hat in the ring. So only a few months after he was out of Downing Street, he potentially could be on his way back in. Which, I mean, this will be the most moot point ever, but that is just totally shocking. I did see a photo of, well, an edited photo of Boris Johnson on Twitter yesterday with a with a stuck on moustache and the the subtitle Joris Bonson, have I even said that right? You get the idea. Is running yes. for prime minister. Okay, so you touched on this, but all over my social media, people are saying that it's totally unjust that a group of three hundred and fifty seven people, the MPs, uh, 
yeah, the MPs are deciding the next leader, that it's not democratic. So is there any part of you that thinks this will turn into a general election? Is that even possible? Like how, how, what's the justification? So the justification is, is that we elect local MPs uh, when we vote in a general election and the local MPs uh, make up the majority party and the leader of that party is the prime minister. So we don't vote for the prime minister. That's the logic. That's the logic of our parliamentary system of government. The problem is, is that it has become more presidential. So we look to the leader and we see them as the figurehead. And increasingly, they're the person that we think we're voting for, even if actually mm-hmm. the name we put across by is our local candidates. So I think there, there is a logic that says, actually, who who is this person running the country? What is their mandate to do what they say they'll do? But the only person who can call an election, really, is the Prime Minister, the government decide when the election is held. It has to be held by December 2024. So we could have more than two years uh, until there's a general election. I think the way that we might have an election, and I think this is less likely than likely, is that an incoming leader sees where the party is at, sees the challenges that are facing them to govern, sees the difficulties in governing. I think this is one of the problems, is that the Conservative Party has effectively become ungovernable in that Mm. open rebellion breaks out. I think if Boris Johnson were to come back, don't forget how many people resigned uh, back in July because of he was prime minister. So I think you could have open rebellion. So the party could become ungovernable. You could have people losing or resigning from the Conservative Party, calling by-elections. So it could be a situation where actually the government doesn't have an effective majority Or you could have a leader that looks at it and says, the Conservative Party is in disarray. We need to regroup. Maybe, actually, it would be in our best long-term interest if we did have an election now, if we did lose the election, when then we can do the work of rebuilding what we're about and what we're passionate about and what is our vision for the country. So I think there are ways that you could have a general election in the next six months or a year, but I think it's unlikely. I think polls out uh, over the last few days show 30% leads for the Labour Party that would see the Conservatives hemorrhaging more than half of their seats. And Conservative MPs, the people who effectively choose who their leader will be, they're the ones that will have half an eye on whether they will keep their jobs. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's helpful. So people might be feeling a bit hopeless. I was feeling a bit hopeless yesterday afternoon. In fact, I asked Danny across the office, could I go and hide under a desk? <laughs> how how do we find hope in this chaos, Danny? I think I, I wasn't despairing, but I was slightly dazed by this. I think this all unfolded far quicker than people thought it would. I think we have to find hope, and I think we have to be people of hope in this context. I think it's important that, that we, I think it's vital that we pray in this these situations. I think sometimes you there's sometimes a bit of a social media kind of thoughts and prayers whenever anything significant or bad happens. Us praying cannot be just a, a trite or pietistic response. It has to be a deep belief that prayer can change things. And we pray for peace. We pray for that deep sense of a wide-ranging peace and the shalom of the kingdom of God that comes and it transforms everything and and we are we are commanded to pray for those in authority and this is a really difficult thing to get our heads around Uh, the context that it was written in in 1 Timothy is 
of the Roman emperor. It was not in a, a nice, peaceful, benevolent leadership. This was the emperor of Rome who persecuted Christians. That This was the context that people are being told to pray for those who are in authority. So I think we should definitely pray for those in authority and we should pray for those who are looking to be in authority in our country. I also think that we should not abdicate responsibility. We don't just pray and walk away. We engage in our political system. We engage in the process. We we think about what it might mean for us to be a part of a system and bring transformation into these places, how we can be carriers of peace into places that need it most, how we can carry hope into these places. I think, and then the third thing I think is that we remember that politics isn't everything. Like I love politics. I love scrolling through Twitter and finding out what's happened, who's up, who's down, but actually there is life beyond politics. And I think it's really healthy to remember that for communities across the UK, that for households, for families, for neighbourhoods, for communities, much of what we do goes on. And there is incredibly important work for all of us to do to bring the hope of Jesus into communities, uh, to work at the things that we are called to do, to be carriers of hope and to not allow the the roller coaster of news, the, the political shenanigans uh, to become the thing that distracts us from that. Uh, it's not to say they're not important or they're not interesting, but actually uh, there is far more to what we're doing than just those things. Right. Thank you, Danny. Now over to this week's episode of Cross Section. Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Wow. What a few days. Where to start and more importantly, where to finish. For various reasons, I wasn't looking at the news much over Tuesday and Wednesday. Then Wednesday evening, got into a conversation with some people going over the past couple of days, political events, and we have a lot to discuss today. We're going to do a politics focus this week, focusing on the chaos in in Westminster. Now, as we remind ourselves often, we are not a political commentary podcast. We're a podcast that looks to process the news, politics and culture through the lens of our Christian faith and to help you, our listener, to do the same. But we are also a group that love to chat politics and some of us, mentioning no names, can really get pulled into the nitty gritty. So I'm going to do my best to keep us focused and to keep trying to answer the question of what difference does being a Christian make in all of this? But Danny, I'm going to come to you first. What, why a vote on on fracking? What, what, what? What happened? What What happened? Well, I am pleased that for once it is a politics free for all. I may have got my wish to have a politics focused (laughs) podcast, but I will try and be well behaved. We're recording this Thursday lunchtime. So if you're listening to this on Friday, everything might have changed. Things are moving incredibly fast. As we're recording, apparently the Prime Minister is meeting with the chair of the 1922 committee, uh, Sir Graham Brady, which is the group of Conservative backbenchers. The last few days have seen a huge crisis in the authority of the government. And the questions are whether uh, whether this government will survive and how long Liz Truss will stay as Prime Minister for. She only became Prime Minister on the 5th of September. 
But on Wednesday evening, you had a vote on fracking that the Labour Party had called uh, through a parliamentary mechanism. And the, the government had initially said that they would be treating this as a confidence vote. So any Conservative MPs that voted against the government and with the Labour Party would be viewed as voting against the leadership of the Conservative Party. Very serious. And they would potentially lose their position as a Conservative MP if they voted in that way. So really serious on a matter where a lot of MPs have different views to the government, primarily because of local commitments that they have made not to support fracking in their constituency. So then you had this final, the final vote at the end of the evening, due to apparently a mistake from a junior member of staff at Downing Street, the minister who was winding up the debate suddenly announced that it wasn't being treated as a confidence vote. Uh, you had the chief whip, Wendy Morton, uh, who, not someone people are particularly familiar with, she did not realise that this change had happened, thought it was being treated as a confidence vote, uh, was up in uproar as she was about to go through the vote, was suddenly pulled away by the Prime Minister. You had the Deputy Prime Minister, who has been apparently accused or suggested that she manhandled, maybe even tried to carry another Conservative MP through the voting lobby, because that's how you vote in Parliament. You actually go through a corridor in order to vote. So it was all chaotic. You had a Conservative MP, Sir Charles Walker, uh, spouting his fury at how this government was operating. And then for about three hours, it wasn't clear last night whether the Chief Whip and her deputy had resigned or not. At about 10.30, it was clarified that they hadn't resigned, or maybe they had resigned and then unresigned. All of this happened a few days after Jeremy Hunt took over as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, ditched the whole of Liz Truss and Kwasi Katan's uh, economic plan, said that there would probably be further spending cuts to come. You had the Prime Minister not coming into the House for a statement. You had Penny Mordaunt, the leader of the House of Commons, having to deny that the Prime Minister was hiding under her desk. Politics is, is interesting. Oh. Yeah, and there's also been lots of references to tofu. I don't I actually thing. understand all the tofu references. It's to do with Suella Braverman, but I don't actually get it. So Suella Braverman said, well, she was talking about the protesters, the stop oil protesters. She described them as tofu-eating wokarati. I assume that's, that's how it's meant to be pronounced. Possibly. And then after, I think after this whole fracking vote, Chris Bryant, MP for Rhonda, said we'd get better leadership from Tofu. Well, I think I'd, I'd like to come in here as the representative of the Tofu Wokarata, as I'm well known to be. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that takes us to a whole other level, doesn't it? I mean, this is the problem of, it's the labelling again, some of the language. The word unprecedented is overused, but I can't remember seeing anything like this for a long, long time politically. It was just kind of incredible, unbelievable, unfathomable last night watching it unfold. But I think one of the questions is the human toll. So that kind of language doesn't help the kind of tofu wokarata. There's, there's equivalents on all sides. The human cost of this is just like really difficult, I think, for people to get their heads around. You've got the language being used, but then you've got allegations that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is hiding under her desk. And there was almost a sense in which that was being taken semi-seriously. You had questions about her health, their blinking in Parliament, her eye movement, people concerned about whether she could actually cope uh, with what was going on. How could anybody cope with the level of pressure that she was experiencing 
And this MP that was alleged to have been kind of frog-marched into the voting was apparently in tears. Uh, you have these kind of scenes. Charles Walker, who Danny referred to, was clearly, I mean, the commentator kept saying, I want to try and communicate to people just quite how disturbed and unsettled you appear to be. Your whole body seems to be kind of reacting to this. The, the human toll of the chaos is hard to comprehend. And that's on the MPs. All their decisions are having implications on everybody else. And we've seen, for example, the cost of living. Uh, there's going to be a timeline on that to April. And suddenly people are going, oh, hold on. So that could be lifted. So what are the implications of that for me? MPs are literally realizing they're potentially about to lose their jobs. People in their constituencies' lives, again, are about to be radically changed. These have significant consequences. And the human toll is immense. The human toll is immense, but I, this is one of the areas of Sir Charles Walker's comments that I found a bit tricky because he was criticising people who had supported uh, the Prime Minister simply to, to get a leg up, to get a position in the Cabinet. But then she, he finished what he was saying by talking about the consequence for MPs who would lose their seats and the fact that the, the, the government weren't really doing anything that would help these MPs that were staring potential defeat at the next election in the face. And I think there is a tension here because, yes, it is true that if an election were called today, more than half of the Conservative MPs probably would lose their seats. It could be more than that. Some of the polls are looking catastrophic for the party. But actually, the party can't decide their leadership purely based on the self-interest of whether MPs lose or hold their seats or not. And I, I get the dynamics. I get the fact that the Conservative MPs don't want to lose their seats. But if they're only looking for a leader because they can hold on to their seats, that's part of the problem. Uh, politics has become about those positions rather than about the purpose of being in Parliament, of potentially being a member of the government. Yeah, we, we don't want MPs making decisions based on whether they're going to be able to pay off their mortgages or not, whilst acknowledging that personal human cost for them. Alicia, how do you think, yeah, just let's hone in on that human point and the the human, just sheer stress that Liz Truss is going through and other MPs and bullying allegations. How do we as Christians either compartmentalise or deal with that side of things? What What can we be doing differently there? I think it's important and desirable and right for Christians and the general public to expect strong leadership from our Prime Minister and the government of the day. And at the moment, that is what's appearing to be lacking. Lacking in leadership and confidence in the decisions that are being made, lack of confidence in the appointments that you've put in place to oversee different departments and responsibilities. And particularly during Prime Minister's questions and the discussion once the Chancellor was giving his announcement, Keir Starmer wanted the narrative to be about this is a government without leadership. This is a prime minister that lacks leadership. And I think it's really important as Christians to recognise that, pray for that. But I think it speaks to actual the void that we have in our politics, in our society of individuals that have character and integrity and a culture for which or parliament as a whole and the politics that disagrees well, doesn't throw out comments like tofu or wokery, but engages in good discussion and dialogue. And I think this is a moment for Christians who have political opinions on the left or political opinions on the right 
to actually hold kingdom values at this moment, to look at we need a leadership, a government, a righteous government that pursues integrity, has that in high regard, that has individuals who are practicing humility and isn't prideful. And at the moment, there's a lot of buying for power, whether that's a seat at the cabinet table, whether that's of responsibility as the prime minister or the chancellor. And in this cultural moment that we're going through, the nation needs not just leadership, but leaders who practice humility and encourage a culture that is one of respect and um, kind of an environment that doesn't create toxicity or disagreement or hate. So I think as Christians, we need to really discern beyond the headlines and bring our faith to the fore is what I would say Mm. on that. Can I ask, this is not representative of my views or anyone else's views on this podcast. Peter's looking at me nervous because what (laughs) am I about to say? But I think looking at the cost of living crisis and what we're hearing as the policies from Labour and from the Tories, I have heard someone say, how can you be a Christian and vote for Tory? Emphasising again, that's not representative of my views or anyone here. But I think it's a question that some people might be asking. And I think it would be really helpful. Danny, I wonder, would you, again, not saying it's representing your views, but could you... Well, I think for, for that disagreeing well, I think it'd be helpful if you could outline why Christian love your neighbour would what they see in the Tory policies. Well, I, wonder, I think I want us to take a step back and say that people make choices about the political party they support uh, for a whole host of different reasons. And I think as Christians, our faith should make a significant difference to how we think about politics and what we think should happen who we think should lead the country, which party should be in government. Politics is complex. There are so many different facets of political life that for different people, they will prioritise different aspects of politics. And often it will be a case that we agree about the ends. What do we want to see? We want to see a world with less poverty. We want to see a world with more justice and more righteousness, more peace. So there are values and there are important biblical principles that we want to see in our politics. And then Christians will disagree about the way to get there. And I think actually it's thinking well of people who disagree about how best to get there. So for for someone on the, the right economically, their view may well be that actually the way we achieve this isn't by giving people individually more money. It's by creating the conditions for the economy, for businesses to create jobs and through those jobs for people to be able to earn money, that they have the dignity and the value through their work uh, rather than being given money just by government because they don't have it. So that would be the the classic uh, argument. So I think... And there are values in that that I think as Christians we can acknowledge and respect. I think we can also see where people might come for another point and say, yes, but what about people who are facing horrific challenges in the coming months who won't be able to pay the bills? Uh, So I think it is important we think well of people who disagree and take different positions on political issues. Well, I think right now I would also add on that question, it's not which Tory party. I mean, that is one of the questions around integrity. So Swella Braverman has stepped down because they've changed their, she's saying, because they changed their uh, manifesto commitment on immigration. 
The budget didn't add up, and so Jeremy Hunt's done a U-turn on the budget. We had the pension triple lock. Again, another manifesto commitment was kind of up for grabs yesterday. It's been reaffirmed again today. Cost of living was promised for two years. Now it's suddenly six months. So there's massive changes in that. That's one thing, and that raises the integrity question. The other is just, I mean, one Conservative MP last night did respond and say, do you know what? This is a consequence of 30 years of cheap money, cheap labor, outsourced manufacturing, public and private debt, chronic family breakdown and despair, all kinds of issues from both the left and the right. He conceded that. And until we take families, communities and the nation seriously, you know, the whole country is going to have a problem. And I would certainly want to say absolutely on the families and communities bit. And we do need to reimagine what it looks like to be the United Kingdom. It's not just the English government. I'll be the first to say, look, Northern Ireland doesn't have a government. So I'm in no position to critique anybody right now. Scotland's got is going to court right now to see if its next election can be on a single issue, become a de, de facto uh, referendum on, on uh, separating out and, and, and independence. So there are challenges right across the UK in this moment. And I think it's easy to get into party political stuff. And we should be involved at party political levels, those who are passionate about it. But I do think we can disagree well on those issues. I think we need to work really hard, though, at how we as Christians and how we as churches support and encourage those that do want to get involved in politics. Because politics is hard. Like the cost and the challenge of being involved in politics is hard. The pressures that you are under are hard. And I think actually, if we want to see better politics, we need, we want to see Christians involved in politics. But actually, like the track record isn't great across the world of evangelical Christians having influence in recent years hasn't always led necessarily to the results you might want. And actually the number of evangelical Christians who have got into politics and then found it really difficult, I think we need to work on how we can disciple and support Christians in politics, how we can recognise the pressures they're under, recognise the fact that they might do things we don't always 100% agree with, but help them to be disciples of Jesus in the political arena. Well, that all ties in beautifully, but both helpful and ties in beautifully to the social media question we put out this week. You can follow us at EAUK News on Twitter and at Evangelical Alliance on Instagram. And this week we asked, has the current political chaos made it more or less likely that you would vote in the next election? 84.6% of people said that it would make them more likely to vote. 15.2%. 4% of people said it would make them less likely to vote. And I think we would all agree that, that voting is a real privilege we have as Christians to, to put our voice into what happens next in politics. Alicia, I want to come to you. I've heard we've already touched on, uh, oh, I've lost which character it was in this chaos. The, the person who made a mistake, was it the de- deputy speaker who made a mistake, which means that the fracking vote wasn't... Well, it was was a junior minister, a junior climate change minister who made the announcement, but apparently the mistake had come from someone in Downing Street who had communicated to this minister that it wasn't being treated. Okay, so we've got that mistake. I'm using quotation marks with my fingers because that's what some people are saying it is. We've got Suella Bravman, her resignation, some people are saying, is a tool by which she can sort of come back around and try to go for leadership. We've got... Who was the other one? Penny Mordaunt. I heard a journalist say, off record, that Penny Mordaunt quoted the question. So when when the other MP asks, is Liz Truss hiding under a desk? 
penny more rather than avoid or change tack, quoted that back, said she is not hiding under a desk, all for the sake of the, the clip that would be shared on the news. I hope you're following with me on that tangent. But um, so Penny Morden quoted it so that as a power move. So it would be seen that Penny Morden is having to defend Liz Truss on this accusation that she's hiding under a desk. Are we with me? I think Penny Morden used to work in PR. Okay. So I'm asking Alicia, do you think this is all gameplay or are we reading too much into it? I think part of it might be gameplay, but I think more importantly, it exposes the disunity within a single party at this moment of time, particularly those that are within cabinet that should have clear lines of communication, understanding they are more briefed than civil servants at times. And yet there isn't a shared understanding or vision or purpose of what the Conservative Party should be in this moment and how the Conservative Party and its policies should respond and engage with the current crises that we are facing as a nation. So part of it is power, but I think more than that, there's just disunity amongst the Conservative Party. And and that, to me, is a worry and a concern uh, longer term. That, That ultimately is what you need. I think biblically, it talks about without vision, the people perish, the importance of leadership and shared communication, not just yes, disagreeingness, but a shared purpose of this is who we are, this is what we're going after, and everyone playing their part to achieve that end serves serves us as the public well. And at the moment, there isn't agreement in that. So one, one of the things, one of the challenges that we all do in, in our work is we work for the Evangelical Alliance. So that is un, unity amongst evangelicals. And, and we read in that in John 17. And one of the challenges, what are you, what are we uniting around? You can kind of unite around everything. Let's all get together, sing Kumbaya and just be united. But we're saying, no, it's united together to make Jesus known. It's united in mission. I think one of the challenges for the Tory party, the Conservative party right now is there are so many different factions and they're not sure what they're prepared to unite around. Politics has always got an element of compromise. There are a variety of different groups there. Two stroke three main parties don't represent every single view unless they've got a breadth to them. And what we're seeing at the minute is, is quite highly conflicting views coming out and a lack of clarity as to what the vision is that unites them. And we understand part of that challenge in the work that we do, but so we've got to have a clear uniting vision. And you have some serious questions around health and education or on cost of living. Should the government be funding that or is that up to the market? Should mortgage rates be sitting at 10%? Should they be at 2% because we've been used to that? Does the market get involved? You've got the libertarians on the one hand saying, stay out, it's nothing to do with us. You've got the Burkean Conservatives and the One Nation saying, no, we need to get involved and a more paternalistic perspective. That's also true within the Labour Party. They've gone through their own battles around that. What can they unite around? That is a real challenge of leadership is to unite around a big enough vision that can take enough people with you. We get to do that around the gospel. They've got a different challenge right now because they don't have a clear enough vision, I want to suggest. I think there's something interesting about the party system. There's part of me that says our party functions well where you have two healthy main parties where the Conservative Party and the Labour Party are clear about what they stand for. They're articulating different visions or different ideas about how the country should be run. So that kind of two-party system creates a really strong dynamic. I was talking to someone this morning from the Netherlands where they have 19 parties in government. And he was mocking me for the chaos of British (laughs) politics. And he was like, we're used to chaos. We're used to having ungovernable situations, but surely you should have it. And the theory of the two-party system is it delivers stable government. But we've not got that. But the other part of me is there's no divine right for any political party to exist. 
And I think you do have to ask some of these questions about are parties, where are parties useful and where are we seeking to cling to the apparatus of political parties when actually what we need is a vision for where the country goes. And when the parties can be useful towards that, that's great. But they shouldn't be the thing that we're seeking to protect and defend. And I think you see too much of that actually even in the Conservative Party right now. That what they actually want is to restore the reputation of the Conservative Party rather than to deliver something that serves the whole country. Peter, you touched on the um, that as Christians we're called to unite to make the name of Jesus known. And we've already talked about disagreeing well, but so what what does it, because I think part of how we unite to make Jesus known is that Christians within ourselves, no matter what differences we might have or what we might disagree on, we unite over the gospel and that will therefore be useful to those looking on and therefore we hope that people want to come and know Jesus for himself so when it comes to politics where there will be big disagreements within the church Alessia maybe you can shed some light what what does it look like for Christians to disagree well with each other on politics how how can we practically go about trying to have good conversations I mean, I think it's important to not have tribalism in, in politics. So particularly for Christians, our common identity and unity is the gospel. And as Danny raised earlier, there are different ways to engage on the direction of travel of bringing about a righteous government, co- dealing with the cost of living crisis. And so Christians who are in politics, Christians who are in parliament, Christians who are in Whitehall, need to be quick and ready to cross party lines, to build consensus, discuss, to pray, to hear the other person's point of view, political position of why that might work and come to, I wouldn't say a compromise, but somewhat of an agreed position that you recognise the value in the other person's viewpoint. And I think for Christian MPs, civil servants, that is especially important because our unity isn't around our politics, our unity is around the gospel. Uh, and so it's important to to kind of contend for that and to honour that in the other. And what about Christians on a Sunday morning that are just in church together and they go to talk about the, the week's news and they think they're going to be saying exactly the same thing, realise they're on totally different pages. What about them? I think that's where actually it's really helpful to, to make sure we're doing that, because otherwise you can have an assumption that everyone thinks like you oh, because we were at church together, the person who's uh, sat in the pew behind me has the same view on whether Liz Trust should go or whether Kirstan is saying the right thing or not. Actually, having a culture where we can talk about things, where there is a there, where there are forums where we can bring our faith into public life issues, explore what it means, how as Christians do we navigate and tackle the big pressing problems, and we hear the different views. I think hearing different views is absolutely crucial. I think one of the things about church history reminds us like there are creedal statements that we kind of unite around. So it's not just we unite around the gospel without defining what that is, but we understand. But these these are the absolute essentials that we're going to unite on. And then we're going to say on something like climate change or on creation care, we're going, yeah, we're all passionate about that. Now, what that means in reality, what that looks like, our response to that might be different. We might say, I think we should go after this. You know, some might say fracking is a good response to that because it's a necessary natural resource to use and we need to do something about it. Others might say it can only be uh, electric cars. But actually, how do you get the electric for the cars? Well, it comes from fossil fuels. Is that the right thing? Some might say it's got to be wind. 
And we might say we disagree practically how we're going to get there, but we all surely must agree that looking after and shooting creation is that's that's the mandate we have been given. So it's it's those kind of different orders of things. So that the why, what drives us should be something we can unite on. How we get there will often be different. And there will be moments where we maybe disagree around the why and we're going right to the core. And I think this is part of the reason this is probably such a fascinating moment is we are right at the core of like health and education, the cost of living. Some of these are asking really fundamental questions about how we do government and the kind of things we're going to resource. What can we afford to do going forward? And these are big questions. They're not tinkering around a tax rate change of 1p here, 1p there. These are really substantial. Does the government underwrite the whole mortgage cost of a society or not? And what are the implications of that elsewhere? So I think these are great questions that we should be wrestling with. But we've got to agree on the fundamentals we're going to unite upon, agree to disagree sometimes on how we get there, but do that respectfully and say, as others have said, how do I listen to you? How do I see you a different way? And and it is that idols, this really challenges, have we put nationalism first? There's a rise in nationalism and we've got to challenge that and make sure that our nationalism or ideologies do not become a, a god essentially and politics can become a god in our lives so we've got to pray for politicians such hard ground that they often have to cover but we've got to be really careful our religious or sorry our, our political views particularly in a place like northern Ireland or scotland where independence in the four or ways of doing things across the uk do not become the idol in our lives and yeah, and just picking up on that, something that you said in that, Peter, about these are profound questions that we're in at the moment in terms of how do we do government or how do we deal with the crisis? I think there's an opportunity for the church and Christians to somewhat be prophetic in this moment, to not return to the status quo or think this is the way that we need to do this in order to go forward. But to think about, particularly in Isaiah, where, where God speaks and he says, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? And I think there's something of the role of the church to be somewhat prayerful and prophetic about what is the uniqueness of the church? What is our unique message? How would, what does righteous government look like? How do we care for the least and the last in our society? How do we put welfare reforms around that to encourage that? How do we recognise somewhat of an um, individual freezing? freedom set within a collective that we are all social beings that should come together to work for a, a bigger cause. So I do think there's also an opportunity for the church to be prayerful, prophetic and creative in forming what comes out of this, should I say, political ashes. Wow. I, totally. That is such um that is such a helpful way of tying together everything that we've talked about that I am almost going to end the episode there. But I, I can't resist because I've got another question I want to ask you guys. I'm sorry. You can switch off now if you'd like to, but we're going to carry on. I just, I just wanted to ask. So Chris Mason, BBC political editor, was when talking about Liz Truss's cabinet, he said that she made a cabinet too much in her own image. <laughs> and that's why it's failed, essentially. And that's why two of the the leading positions have had to change in the last couple of weeks. Um, what what do you make of that? And, and yet there's an article in The Telegraph this morning saying that Liz Truss is now surrounded by moderates in the party, that uh, James Fleming, I believe, is the only major figure who voted for Brexit. So you do have this constant war within the political factions. It comes back to some of the point we make, that you need to be able to, as a leader, certainly leading a cabinet government, you need to have people who are sufficiently with you to ensure that you can do what you want to do, 
but also sufficiently diverse to represent the party that you lead and enable you to bring it. So that's the balancing act. You can't have so much disagreement that it becomes ungovernable, but you need enough diversity that it then reassures the rest of the parliamentary party that you're listening to the whole party. And the problem is, it's just the breakdown of confidence in leadership has happened so much that it really doesn't matter if she had people that, if people massively disagree, they're just going to be briefing behind her backs. And if they all agree, then you've got a whole load of people outside the cabinet that are going to be causing her problems. I, I think she's got bigger problems than just that. Mm. Yeah, and if we if we were to understand from Swilla Braverman's uh, resignation, I mean, hers was a very fundamental disagreement after a, a full-scale three-hour stand-up row, I think. And so our role, like it does take us to this truth to power moment to build on what Alyssa was saying, the absolutely prophetic role in this moment. And speaking truth to power is tough if we're in a post-truth world. But actually, I'm reminded of Tom Wright talking about Jesus' encounter with Pilate. And, and they kind of have this thing and back and forward a bit. And then Pilate says, what is truth? And, and Tom Wright calls him the first postmodernist. It's not a new idea that people aren't sure what truth is and we're going to argue about what's true in this moment. Actually, Jesus encountered the exact same space that we're in. Our role is to speak truth to power. Those in power won't always accept that truth. We'll argue about what truth is about. And that ultimately is a role the church has to play. It's not about standing up for ourselves. It is about standing up for the least and the lost in our society in these moments. And we do have a role to play in that. And I think that's what we want to do in this season. Well, I think we can take away that we need to disagree well and pray very hard for our leaders in this moment that that wise leadership would come. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week on Cross Section. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello, I'm Chris Ringland and I work as part of the Scotland team. Yes, I'm the same Chris that gets mentioned at the end of our episodes for putting the podcast together. Thanks for listening to Cross Section. We hope you really enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform, share the episode on social media and tell your friends and family so that they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening and have a great week.